0: All right, so uh, peace is so much more than the absence of war. That is how many define peace today. But the ancients believed that you could experience peace even in times of war. You see, for the ancient Jews, peace was about being internally whole, internally complete. Those who experience real peace experience wholeness and completion. They experience rest. That's why the Hebrew word for peace, which I'm sure many of you know, which is what? What's that Hebrew word for peace? Anybody know? Shalom is very related to the Hebrew word for our Saturday or for rest, which is Shabbat. Shalom and Shabbat. Here it sounds familiar, similar, because the very word for Sabbath rest is very similar to peace, because they're interrelated. Now, I want you to think for a moment of all the different ways that culture tells you to experience peace. When you are in strife with someone, discord, when there's fears and anxieties within, all the things that this culture tells you to turn to and to do. And then I want you to amplify that by the things you want, you tell yourself to do when you're afraid, when you're anxious, when you're at odds with someone. The point is this, whether it's culture or whether it's your flesh, the temptation is for you to manipulate. It's for you to control your own inner peace. And I think sometimes that adds insult to injury because you're like, why can't I do it? I'm doing everything I'm telling myself to do and what culture tells me to do, and it's not happening. But this is where the gospel clashes with our culture and where the gospel clashes with your flesh. Peace is a work of God in your life. God has to do it. Peace is a byproduct of God's work of faith in you. Peace begins in God because God is peace. So we turn to Romans 5, 1 for a moment, and I want you to take a look at this. And I also want you to see how beautifully connected this goes with where we were on Wednesday night, and then where we'll be again this coming Wednesday night, God willing, if we're able to be together. Paul says, having been justified by faith, that was our topic last Wednesday. Look at what happens for those who are justified by faith. We have peace with God through our Lord Jesus Christ. Justification by faith is God's gift, God's work into your life. And we began to learn about justification by faith last Wednesday at gather." Those who have been justified by faith in Christ alone experience peace with God. They are no longer at war with God. We were incomplete without God. The cross comes in and bridges peace, wholeness, completeness, true shalom. Before God began his work of salvation in us, we were not at peace with God. We were separated from God. We were enemies of God. But the moment that God puts you in a new position to see and hear and feel differently about Jesus, that moment that you put your hope in Jesus for who he is and what he has done, the moment you experience justification by faith, you had peace with God. So today we see how God works peace into his people through Jesus, who is the author of That's where we're going today, all right? So let's get to our proposition. So remember, our proposition is, I try to condense our Bible text into a single statement that you can take away is what does God want me to pull away from the text that we're in today? This is it. Jesus works faith into his people by his word and by his spirit. Why? To overcome their fears and then to reprioritize their lives. In the ultimate sense, Peace is an experience given by God to his people. This means that no matter the claims of the world and how they feel at peace with themselves, it really is a secondary peace. It is overshadowed by the peace that God gives to people. And because of this, there is no amount of work that you can do to achieve peace. That's why the more that you try to push and push and push to have peace in that relationship, sometimes it feels like it gets worse, right? God works faith into you. God works faith into a person through three things, and we began to look at this last Wednesday, through his word, through his spirit, and through his body, which is the church. This is how the Christian overcomes their fears and their anxieties. They don't overcome fear by a culture tell them, just dig deep. Like, look within yourself, find the courage within yourself, draw it up from the well of yourself, and face the situation. That's not how Christians overcome their anxieties or their fears. We also don't overcome fears and anxieties by turning to things that make us momentarily feel better. Christians overcome fear by and through the scriptures, the promises of God, which we're going to get into today, and the Spirit of God. So the reality of God's work in our lives means that your life and my life must be reprioritized. And this is what it means for us. What it means for us today is that whether you've been a Christian for a day, a week, a hot minute, a year, decades, 50 years, you should never assume that just because you believed something and learned something 10 years ago, 15 years ago, from this preacher, from this church, from this book, that it's always the gospel truth. It always, you should always cement it and believe it. As a Christian, you should never think in the final analysis, you have everything figured out. You should never think like this, that because I've had certain attitudes, I've had certain habits, I've had certain hobbies, and God died for me, that means I can always have those attitudes about life or about relationships or about marriage or about fill-in-the-blank these habits about money, these particular hobbies. Christ died for me, so he's got to be okay with it. He'll always love me. He'll always accept me. The Christian life is about reformation. It's about constant reformation, constantly reforming our lives by his people, by his spirit, and by his word. So in our pivot today, when we get to our application, we are going to see how Jesus calls a Christian to live both personally personally, and publicly. Because as we see with these disciples today, they are scared to death about what's going to happen to them in their public lives because Jesus has been crucified. All right, let's get started with our first point. In our first kind of bunch of scriptures, we're going to see this that Jesus creates peace in his disciples. And he does it by giving his word and by giving his spirit. So, this what we're reading right now in John 20, this was the very first Easter Sunday. Peter and John already saw Jesus' empty tomb. They went home. Remember that? A couple texts ago. But Mary Magdalene stayed at the tomb. And Mary Magdalene, out of all the people in the history of Christianity, for to see the resurrected Jesus for the first time, a woman saw the resurrected Jesus. A woman who was, as the scriptures tell us, was demon-possessed. A social outcast. And Jesus chose to reveal himself to her, as the first person. And we saw that Jesus turned Mary's sorrows into joy. She had griefs. She had sorrows. Jesus was present with her in her sorrows. Jesus changed Mary, and then he called Mary. He said, go to my disciples and tell them everything that has happened today. And she did it, right? She obeyed her Lord. Today, our text is just some hours later. It is still the same day, even though it's been like two weeks since we read about Mary Magdalene. Let's take a look at verse 19. John tells us it's evening on that day, that same day, the first day of the week, when the doors were shut where the disciples were for, and this is going to be a key phrase for us, for fear of the Jews. Jesus came, and he stood in their midst, and he said to them, Peace be with you. So this is Sunday night, some hours later, that first Easter Sunday, and John tells us that the doors in the room where the disciples met were shut in. The disciples are meeting privately, and John tells us why. They're afraid. They are afraid of the Jews. And we have to remember, this does not take place in 21st century America, where they say diversity is the theme of the day. The climate and the culture of first century Palestine was largely religious. Judaism was the dominant religious and social ethic of the day. These disciples of Jesus are no longer in the religious majority. And they're no longer in the cultural majority. So he ask, why are these disciples afraid of the Jews? Well, these Jews, just two and a half days prior, crucified their rabbi, crucified their lord, their master, their teacher. And they're wondering, are my cousins done yet? Look what they did to Jesus Are they just going to be satisfied with crucifying Jesus? What will happen to us? These disciples were public followers of Jesus. Do you remember the night in which Jesus was betrayed and he was arrested, and Jesus is before the high priest and John and Peter and the the courts kind of waiting around? They could tell that Peter was a follower of Jesus just by the way he presented himself. They were public followers of Jesus. And we see that just as Jesus was present in Mary's griefs and sorrows, Jesus is going to be present in the fears of his people. He's going to be present in their anxieties. And we ask, well, how is Jesus present in their lives? Jesus is physically present, a luxury you and I do not have. Jesus was not silent to these disciples, and Jesus speaks into their fears. Jesus says, peace be with you. So we see that when his disciples are fearful and anxious, he speaks the promise of peace into their lives. we got to figure out today what that means. And it begins with this. Peace be with you is far more than a traditional Middle Eastern greeting. The disciples are afraid of the opinion of the public. They are afraid of the opinion of the Jews. They are afraid of what the Jews are going to do to them. And you think that that fear has just evaporated from the Christian church today of what the culture at large will do to Christians if they live publicly for their Lord? No. It's the reason why many of us are not vocal about what the Lord Jesus has done for us. But we will see that in their fears, and then we'll see in our fears, Jesus is present and he is vocal. Let's look at verse 20. John said that when he said this, he showed them both his hands and his side. And then look at what happens. The disciples rejoiced when they saw the Lord. After Jesus speaks peace to his disciples, he shows them his body. Jesus was dead. How is it that a dead man can be standing before them? Is Jesus a ghost? That was one of the popular theories in the first couple centuries of the world was Jesus actually wasn't really crucified. This was just a ghost, a phantom. So we ask, is Jesus only present with these disciples spiritually? Was Jesus really crucified? Therefore, Jesus' presence right here, it dispels any objections to his physical suffering, crucifixion, and resurrection. Why? Because Jesus shows his hands to the disciples. Jesus shows his side to the disciples. And we have read previously what happened with his hands and his side. Nails were driven through them and a spear was thrust into his side and blood and water came out to confirm that he was actually dead. The disciples are afraid of what the Jews will do to them because of what they did to Jesus. But Jesus is present in their fears. And Jesus speaks to them in their fears. Jesus shows his people that he is alive and well. Whatever the Jews intended to do to Jesus did not work. So if they're afraid of what the Jews would do for them, therefore, it will not ultimately work. Jesus' presence, his resurrected presence, is the balm for the disciples' fears. In verse 19, they are afraid. But can you tell their disposition at the end of verse 20? Are they afraid anymore? No. Joy. Fears to joy in the presence of Jesus. In verse 20, they rejoice. Jesus overcomes our fears with joy in his presence and in his word. Let's look at verse 21 now. So Jesus says to them again, Peace be with you. And then he adds, As the Father sent me, I also send you. Jesus repeats the same phrase again about peace. Why is Jesus doing this? Jesus is clearly trying to speak peace over his people. What's going on right now is that Jesus is commissioning, and then he is sending his disciples into the world. Right now, they are deathly afraid of what the Jews are going to do to them because they follow Jesus. As Jesus sends his disciples into the world, do you think that fear is just going to stop because they crossed the borders of Palestine into another part of the Roman Empire? No. Do you think these Jews are deathly afraid, or these disciples are deathly afraid of the Jews, but when they go into Greece, they're going to stop being afraid? When they go into Rome, Italy, they're all of a sudden going to be unafraid of the Italians? When they go into Egypt, that they're all of a sudden going to be unafraid of the Egyptians? When they go east into India, as Thomas did historically, do you think it's all of a sudden going to be unafraid of them? No, that same fear is going to be present no matter what culture they go into. God the Father sent God the Son to redeem a people, and God the Son is returning back to the Father. Jesus has accomplished his purpose for taking on flesh, and now Jesus sends his people, his body, you, the church, to fulfill his redemptive purpose in the world. And this is another cause for fear, right? Right? Or wrong? There's like no response from all just now. Like what? Okay. But it is here that Jesus gives even more. He doesn't stop. Let's look at verses 22 and 23. And when he had said this, this is so strange. We've got to figure out what this means. Because we're in 21st century America and not 1st century Palestine. This is just weird. Jesus breathed on them. And then he speaks to them again, and he says fundamentally two things. One, receive the Holy Spirit. What does that mean? And then even more difficult, verse 23, if you forgive the sins of any, their sins have been forgiven them. If you retain the sins of any, they have been retained. So we see Jesus do two things. Jesus breathes onto disciples, and many of us, like, I, I know you were thinking somewhere underneath. I wonder what Jesus' breath smelled like, unless you're not like me, because I wonder that too. And then Jesus speaks to the disciples. Now, for those of us who have read Genesis, we know that Moses told us that God created the world by what? By speaking. Let there be light, and there was, right? Moses also tells us that when God created humanity, when he created Adam and Eve, he breathed life into them. You see that continuity to Old to New Testament? It's pretty awesome. The Hebrew word, I've done this for you before, I'm going to overemphasize it. It's, the Hebrew word for breathe is ruach. It even sounds like breathiness coming out. Chruach. The Greek word is pneuma, where we get pneumonia. It's about lungs. It's about breathing. These are the two words that our Bible writers use to describe breathing and God the Spirit. Ruach or numas. But those of us who have read the prophet Ezekiel, which we've brought up recently together, in Ezekiel 37, God allowed Ezekiel to see the valley of the dry bones. Remember that? Remember talking about this recently? Do you recall how God brought life back to dry bones? Do you remember how that happened? We even sing about it. There's a song in our church that we sing congregationally about this. These dry bones have to have life breathe into them, right? Why is Jesus breathing onto these disciples? Is it clear? Is it clear what the breath of God does in a person? Fear and anxiety dries us out, right? Fear and anxiety... Is a cause of crippling in us, to just make us motionless and just stay at home. Jesus breathes on the disciples as a sign. And remember, signs aren't the thing themselves. It's gonna like go try to find some after effect of Jesus' breath in that upper room somewhere. Signs point. Remember my thing? Remember, I usually throw this to who? Do you all know who I usually throw this to? I throw it to Zach. He's too far right now. Me giving him my sign of marriage doesn't make him married. It points to a different reality. Or just because I take this off my finger, it's not that I'm no longer married. It's just a sign that points to a truth. This is a sign right now, too. It's not the thing itself. Jesus breathes on the disciples as a sign that confirms his promise to always provide peace in their times of fear and anxiety. That's the antidote to Christians when they experience fear. The promise of Jesus, the presence of Jesus, the people of Jesus. Jesus breathes onto them, though, and he says, receive the Holy Spirit. You see that? People have struggled with this phrase since Jesus said it and how it connects to what transpired in Acts 2 at the day of Pentecost, which we have gone through as a church. When did the disciples receive the Holy Spirit in the way that Jesus promised? Is it here in John 20? or is it in Acts 2? Because Acts 2, the Day of Pentecost, that's 50 days after Passover. We're just on the very same weekend of Passover, right? So when did it happen? Is the Bible wrong? On the Day of Pentecost, the Holy Spirit began to permanently indwell the people of Jesus. But what about right here? Jesus is preparing Jesus is commissioning. Jesus is authorizing his disciples for ministry. He's returning to his father soon, and he cannot send his spirit like he said in the way that he has promised until he returns to the father. So John 20, 22, and 23 is like their commissioning service. Jesus is giving the disciples what we call today apostolic authority. Don't be afraid of that term, apostolic authority. There's a lot of confusion with that. But here's what it basically is. When these disciples act, when they speak, they do so with the authority of Jesus himself. That's what apostolic authority is. And it is here that we are reminded yet again of the importance of gather. You see how I keep plugging gather almost every single gathering we have? It's more than just having good food. Which, it's um, build your own breakfast burrito on Wednesday. Or right, anyway. On Sunday mornings, we get to come together for the preaching of God's Word. And those of you who have been doing Wednesdays with us for any time, you know that Wednesdays feel different than this. It feels much different. The teaching of the Word is a little different here at Heritage than the preaching of the Word. Our Sundays are different than our Wednesdays. It's intentionally so. In our last Bible study series at Gather, I taught through Peter's confession of faith in Matthew 16. Remember, like, um, Jesus asked the disciples, like, who do the people say that I am? And then he targets them. Who do you say I am? And then Peter eventually rises and says, you are the Christ. You're the son of the living God. And Jesus is like, you didn't come up with this yourself. My father gave you the ability to say this. But then Jesus said something like this to Peter, Matthew 16, 19. And Christians have struggled with this for a long time. Jesus tells Peter, I'll give you the keys of the kingdom of heaven, but this is where I want you to, to hook into for a moment. Jesus says, whatever you bind on earth shall have been bound in heaven, and whatever you loose on earth shall have been loosed in heaven. It is a far stretch to take this verse and imply that Jesus is giving Peter the Catholic Church's version of papal authority to Peter right here. And it's more faithful and more precise to see that Jesus is giving Peter apostolic authority authority. And apostolic authority is not papal authority. Can you see how the phrasing of Matthew 16, 19 is very similar to the phrasing in John 20, 23? When you do this, something, something, something has been done. It's the same type of structure. At Gather that night, I told you that The Greek back then is so much more precise, so much more simpler than our English. It is so easy to say something, and it doesn't even come out the way that we intend. We have to say so much in English. To where a lot of Eastern religions, they just say like one thing, and it just means a whole bunch. It's so cool. It should read something like this. Whenever you bind something on earth, it would have already been bound in heaven. That's what that phrase really means. If we were to take a look at it, if we spoke this type of Greek that's no longer in existence now. We have to ask, what does this mean? God uses the apostles to reveal and to make clear his authority and sovereign will. If they say and do something, it is because God has already intended for it to be said and done. That's the point of the passage. It's the same with John twenty twenty three. So as we take a look at this phrase, if the apostles extend forgiveness to somebody, it is because, first, God has already forgiven them. And if the disciples decide, we're going to retain forgiveness in this situation, and instead give the person what they deserve, it would have already been determined for that by God the Father. A good example of this would be in the early church, remember, Ananias and Sapphira withheld forgiveness. And if you read the story, you know what happens. They lied about money. The focus is all about God. Not Peter, not popes, not really apostles. The focus is on God. It's about God, about God's glory. God is active. And the apostles are just conduits that God uses to make his will known. And you know if you've ever used a piece of conduit, you know that what's going through didn't get its origin or source from the conduit itself. The conduit is just being used to take it from one place to another. Whatever's going through the conduit has a source. The apostles are just conduits. They don't have any authority in and of themselves. It comes from a source, and the source is the resurrected Jesus. Therefore, the writings of the New Testament carry this apostolic authority. The men who wrote the New Testament are these apostles who saw the resurrected Jesus. So apostolic authority is just derived authority, dependent authority. Apostles are disciples of Jesus who were eyewitnesses to the resurrection of Jesus, and then they were commissioned by Jesus and sent out to continue his work of being used by God to redeem people. This commissioning began here in John 20, and it began to be carried out until the day of Pentecost. These disciples have a new ministry, And there's going to be new challenges, new fears, new anxieties, and new griefs and sorrows. And Jesus gives his word and his spirit to overcome these challenges and fears and anxieties and sorrows. And that brings us to point two. Let's take a look at it. We're going to see that Jesus creates peace in Thomas by putting him in a position to believe. In point two, we're going to focus on Thomas. Because we find out that Thomas was not present in our earlier verses to see and hear the resurrected Jesus for himself. Let's go to verse 24. John tells us that Thomas, one of the twelve, called Didymus, which just means twin in Greek, was not with them when Jesus came. So Thomas didn't experience the resurrection of Jesus. His current experience came from Peter, James, and John, and the others. Now John doesn't tell us why Thomas was absent. Remember, this is still the same weekend of Passover, so we don't know. Maybe he was with family. We don't know. We just know he wasn't present. But John tells us what the apostles said to Thomas, and John tells us how Thomas reacted to them. Let's take a look at it. Verse 25. So disciples tell Thomas, we have seen the Lord. Remember, there's a joy going on, fear to joy. We see and can hear the excitement in their voices here. But look how Thomas responds. Unless I see in his hands the imprint of the nails and put my finger into the place of the nails and put my hand into his side, I will not believe. Look at all these conditions that Thomas puts on just believing what his fellow apostles are telling him. The apostles tell Thomas, we have seen the Lord. Jesus took their fears and replaced it with joy in his presence. When you are enjoying something, You know what the result is? You should probably have picked this up in my preaching by now. When you truly enjoy something, you cannot help but tell others about it, right? How many scenarios and storytelling examples have I given to you over the years to help you believe this? When you are truly excited about something, when something is truly important to you, you show up, and you talk about it, and you do it, right? By implication, when you're not talking about it, and when you're not showing up, it shows it's not a value to you. But we're going to talk about the positive. When you enjoy something, you share it with others. How often have I shared Beef Wellington with you? Not literally. I wish I could bake it for you. I would do it in a heartbeat. How often have I spoken about Beef Wellington since Tease and I have come back from the UK? Right? It is clear that I enjoy beef wellington, right? I haven't even told you about sticky toffee pudding yet. I'm still thinking about how I'm going to get that UK dessert woven into these sermons. The apostles tell Thomas about Jesus because of the joy that they found in him. They were afraid. Jesus showed up in their fears. They are happy, content, overjoyed. But their experience isn't Thomas's yet. It's not. They got to see the resurrected Jesus. Thomas did not. All Thomas knows right now, in real time, is that Jesus' tomb is empty. That's all he knows. Now, we have historically called Thomas. We put a quality in front of his name. What is it? Doubting Thomas, right? And sometimes preachers like to say, like, use that, like, negatively. Some preachers like to use it positively and say, Doubt's okay. It's okay to be cynical. Because a lot of people today in the West are cynical about Jesus. But Thomas's response to the apostles merely affirms something I have told you over the years in many different ways. And my current way of saying it is, I can eat beef wellington all day long and tell you it is delicious. I can tell you it is better than the drive through burger that you like to go to. You can say that you trust me. You can say, Pastor, typically when you say something, I believe it. We had that relationship. We've been with each other over the years. And you can still have doubts about my claims about Beef Wellington. Is it really that good? Come on. Why are you like this? Because it's my experience. It's not your experience. You didn't get to sit in London and try Beef Wellington. I did. You did not. And that is the beginnings of some of our doubts as humans. You have not tasted it for yourself. That's why David says in the Psalms, for you to taste and see that the Lord is good. I hope that by seeing and hearing about my enjoyment for Beef Wellington, that one day when you see it on the menu somewhere, you try it for yourself. And then come back and we'll talk about it, right? And I also pray even more. That the way that I enjoy God, the way that you have seen me over the years, the way that you've heard me over the years as I have preached and I have taught you God's word, that it will move you, Christian, to read it for yourself, to understand it for yourself, and to live it for yourself. Because my experience is not your experience. You have to taste and see for yourself. Thomas right now needs a personal experience with Jesus because Thomas, too, is a disciple. Thomas, too, is an apostle with the same calling as Peter and James and John. And, in fact, we hold Thomas as the figure. All the disciples basically went west. They went North Africa. They went Turkey. They went Greece, Italy, Spain, up in Britannia, up into France. Thomas went east. He went to India. And we're thankful that he did. Let's take a look at verses 26 and 27. John fast forwards eight days. And John says, after eight days, his disciples were again inside, and Thomas with them. And Jesus came. The doors having been shut, still shut, Jesus stood in their midst and said, Peace be with you. And then he turns to Thomas. And look at what he says to Thomas Reach here with your finger, see my hands. Reach here your hand and put it into my side. And what does Jesus say? Don't be unbelieving, but believing. Jesus appears to disciples again eight days later. This means that Jesus appeared to his disciples multiple times. We already know this because we looked at a scripture recently that said that over, what was it, 516 people have seen the resurrected Jesus. And Paul tells them, like, many of them are still alive, you can go and find them and confirm it for yourself? There's many eyewitnesses to the resurrection of Jesus. So Jesus repeats his promise of peace right now. Thomas has now seen and heard the resurrected Jesus for himself. But Jesus doesn't stop there. He invites Thomas to experience it. He is no ghost. He is no phantom. He is no spirit. He is body. He is flesh. He has been physically resurrected. Jesus invites Thomas to touch his crucifixion wounds. Can you imagine that? Have you ever touched like a scar or a wound that's healed over on you and that kind of weird feeling you have? And Thomas was about to do that to Jesus. Thomas touched Jesus' hands, his nail-scarred hands. Thomas touched Jesus' side where a spear went and was thrusted into And Thomas has now seen for himself. He has now heard for himself. And he has now touched Jesus for himself. Thomas now believes. And what we say here to Heritage, we've always said over these years, is that believing is more than just an intellectual activity. Believing is experiencing and enjoying something for yourself. Thomas is no longer unbelieving. He's believing. And look at what Thomas responds to Jesus with in verse 28. My Lord and my God. It's clear, Heritage, right? Do you think Thomas doubts anymore? No. No. Jesus was present in his doubts and overcame his doubts with his presence, with his promises. And he also used his people to reveal his doubts. Thomas's doubts have been replaced with affirmations of faith. Have you ever wondered why here at Heritage we express what we believe about Jesus in affirmations? We have eight of them here at Heritage. You want to know why? Because of things like this. When God does something in you, we affirm things about life. We affirm things about Jesus. Thomas is affirming that Jesus is his Lord and his God. And we too at Heritage, we affirm things as well. Jesus is more than Thomas's rabbi now. Jesus is Thomas's Lord and God. And we ask, how did this happen? Right? So quick. Jesus put Thomas in a position to believe. Mary Magdalene's obstacle a couple weeks ago was sorrow. The disciple's obstacle was fear and anxiety. Thomas's obstacle was doubt. Does that pretty much run the whole human gamut of emotions when we hear about the gospel? Sorrows and griefs, anxieties and fears, and doubts, right? And we have not once seen Jesus condemn Mary Magdalene for her sorrows and her griefs. Amen? Amen. Not once. We have not seen Jesus condemn the disciples for being afraid of people. Not once. And here we do not see Jesus putting Thomas down because of his doubts, right? Wow, it's amazing. That's our God. Instead, we see Jesus move to be present with them. We see Jesus move to overcome their fears and doubts, to show them they can't do it themselves. He must do a work in them. That is what the resurrection does for the people of Jesus. It removes obstacles as those angels roll the stone away from Joseph of Arimathea's tomb. That's what Jesus does. And Jesus uses his interaction with Thomas to speak about the nature of believing. This is our final verse. Jesus says to Thomas, because you have seen me, have you believed? Blessed are they who did not see and yet believed. The apostles believed because they saw Jesus for themselves. But here in verse 29, Jesus begins to mention a group of people who don't see Jesus, but believe. Do you see that? Believing, therefore, believing Jesus isn't physically seeing, physically hearing, physically touching Jesus for yourself. We don't have that luxury. Believing Jesus is the work of God to give people, what we say, new spiritual hardware. To see Jesus differently, to hear Jesus differently, to feel differently about Jesus. Believing is experiencing and enjoying all God is for you in Jesus. Thomas believed because God put him in a position to experience Jesus for himself. That's what our gatherings are designed for every single Sunday and Wednesday. When you come here, we hope and pray that we are going to put you in a position. think God will put you in a position so you can see and feel differently about the claims of Jesus and what this life is about than previously when you walked into the store. If we've done that, check, success. And if we're not doing that, we have to reform ourselves as well. Thomas believed because God put him in a position to experience Jesus. But Jesus is going to physically return to his father. So we ask, how do the next generation of Christians believe when Jesus is not here physically present with them. Because Jesus says, blessed are those who do not see me, but believe. I believe that Peter tapped into what Jesus said right here when he wrote one of his letters to the Christians in Turkey. We get it in first Peter chapter one, verse eight. Peter says this, though you have not seen him, you love him. Though you do not see him now, which implies later you will, which is so beautiful. But believe in him, you greatly rejoice with joy inexpressible and full of glory. After this first generation of Christians, every other generation will not have the luxury to see the resurrected Jesus for themselves, yet we believe. Are we foolish? Maybe. Well, maybe a little bit. From Peter's audience to us, we have not seen the resurrected Jesus. But Jesus has already like, given us some connections, like, you know, wind, you can't see it. We've read the Gospel of John earlier, right? Hey, we don't deny the existence of wind, right? Because we see the effects. And Jesus says, so is everybody who's born of a spirit, when he was talking to Nicodemus that night. Even though we do not see Jesus, we believe him. Why? Because the same Jesus who is operating doing this in the, in the life of his apostles right now is the same Jesus who's working still today. And the work of God is using his word, it's using his spirit, and it's using his people to put people in different positions. To kind of push them to a crisis of faith. Are you going to believe and taste and see for yourself? Or do you want to keep thinking that drive-thru burger is better than filet? And we're okay if you decide to pick drive-thru burger. Hearts grieve. We've been convinced of something deeper, that Jesus is the way, the truth, the life. We've been convinced of this. Like the disciples, when God works faith in us, joy is the result. Mary experienced joy when Jesus was present in her sorrows. Remember that? The apostles experienced joy when Jesus was present in their fears. God does not need to be physically present to work faith into his people because he uses his word his spirit, and his people to accomplish this. So we get to our pivot and we ask, what does God's work of faith do in the people of Jesus today? All right, so let's pivot. Let's get to our point of application. And the call today is for you to trust Jesus, to provide peace, to live for him publicly. Something that, unlike the generation before us, is becoming more and more increasingly disadvantageous to live as a Christian in the public sphere. Now, in our kindred ministry, if you're in our kindred ministry, which is our one-on-one discipling ministry, you learn about two purposes as a Christian. One, you are to love Jesus personally. I can't do it for you. Your mom can't love Jesus for you, and it affects you directly. Your dad can't. Your husband can't. Your wife can't. You must love Jesus personally. And second, we learned that you are to live for Jesus publicly. If you have found real enjoyment in Jesus, you're going to live like it. Will there be challenges? Sure. Will there be uncertainties in how that plays out? Of course. But by and large, you talk and live for things that excite you. And this shows up in how you live in culture. But here in America, here in the sophisticated West, the pressure is high on you to never be public about something so personal. American culture will cite the separation of church and state to support this because there are legitimate people in places of power in our country that believe that Christianity should should never have any type of public platform. And there are agencies that work in our country and push for things in Washington to ensure this. But this grossly misapplies the historical attention about this foundational idea. America's left, and I'm going to say it, America's right as well, often misrepresents and misapplies the foundational ideas and the foundational documents that this country has built upon. That's not the intention for today's sermon. I just want to call out the extremes of the left and the right. So I guess I'm offending probably both types of people. The emphasis of separation between church and state is that America is not going to have a state-funded, state-led religion. That's the point of separation of church and state because the founders, by and large, came from England, and England has a state religion. They had a king who wanted to do something. The pope wouldn't let him do it, so he decided to start his own version of Catholicism in England. It's called Anglicanism. The king or queen is the head of the governmental affairs and also the head of religious affairs, of Christianity in England. The leader of that country still today, though it has not been used, they have ministers in place instead of them to reign. But they shape both government and religion. The founders of this country didn't want America to be like England. Well, take your beef wellington, We'll take your sticky toffee pudding. We'll leave state-led religion across the pond. That's the focus. The founders wanted Americans to live out their own faith without any significant government interference. We have that exit sign right there because the government tells us we have to. We have that fire extinguisher right there because the government tells us to but the government cannot tell us what should come out of here. That's the right separation of church and state. Do you see it? There is no Church of America, and that honors the intentions of the founders of this particular country. But I say this because that's exactly the same issue these disciples are having right now with the Jews. First century Palestine is state-run religion. The cultural norm is Judaism and Judaism alone. And even if you weren't Jewish and became Jewish religiously, you were less than if you didn't share their blood. This is what the disciples were afraid of. State religion is Judaism. And these disciples, though they are ethnically Jewish, they don't see themselves as religiously Jewish anymore. They have Jesus as God. Jesus as Lord, Jesus as teacher. So how is this religious, cultural majority going to respond to them? Jesus was crucified. And the Christian today holds Jesus as their God and their Lord. It's not just Thomas's affirmation. It's our affirmation. So how are your relationships going to respond? How are people going to respond at work if you publicly love and live for Jesus? How will social media respond? How will this country respond when you live publicly for Jesus? Many of you I know because you share your hurts and your sorrows with me. Many of you cannot even have a dinnertime conversation with the people you love the most without their eyes rolling, right? Without them just going, oh, or they're even blatantly antagonistic against you because you love Jesus. I know your sorrows. You share them with me. But on the other hand, church, the chief purpose that God has for you on this earth isn't to be the income earner, isn't to be the spouse, isn't to be the parent. It is for you to love Jesus personally and to live for Jesus publicly until God takes you out or until his son returns. And the temptation for us is to be so afraid of people, whether it's your personal relationships or just people at large in culture, that you don't live for Jesus publicly. We are afraid of how these relationships will respond. Just like these disciples. Do you see that? Nothing has changed for the people of Jesus. This is still the same fears that you and I have, that they had back then, 20 centuries ago. And it is here that I want to remind you that Jesus makes promises and Jesus keeps promises. And I want us to remind you of two promises that Jesus has given in the gospel that we're reading, the gospel of Mark. We're gonna go back to some weeks ago, maybe some months ago. And be reminded of two precious promises. First one, John 16, What Jesus says. These things I have spoken to you, so that in me you may have, you say it, peace. In the world you have tribulation. But take courage. I have overcome the world. The promise Jesus gives is that he overcomes the world. You don't have to do it. You don't have to manipulate and control your own peace. You don't have to. Jesus gives you a promise to replace this, this commercialism that we do here in America. You've got to work for everything. Jesus has already worked for it on the cross and proved it by his resurrection. Light of the world stepped into darkness. Darkness rejected the light. They attempted to snuff out the light, but they couldn't. The resurrection of Jesus means Jesus has overcome the world already. And Jesus tells his people in this world that I have overcome already, you have tribulation. But thank God, Jesus does not orphan us to our tribulation. That is why the crucifixion of Jesus is the centerpiece of our faith. Jesus was orphaned on the cross, so you would never be orphaned in your tribulation. Do you see that? He experienced orphanage, so you don't ever have to. You always have a father and adopted brothers and sisters. It's good news, right? It's good news. Because of this, Jesus says, you today can have courage in tribulation. So how do the people of Jesus find courage when they're afraid? How do the people of Jesus find courage when they're challenged? How do people of Jesus find courage in tribulation? Jesus speaks. That's step one. Jesus speaks peace to his people. Jesus conquered the grave, and Jesus gives his spirit to his people. Promise two. Let's go back a couple more chapters into John 14. And we have been looking at this verse off and on since the fall on Wednesday nights. Jesus says, but the Helper, the Holy Spirit, whom the Father will send in my name. He will teach you all things and bring to your remembrance all that I said to you. And now it gets good. What's that next word? Peace. Peace I leave with you. My peace I give to you. Not as the world gives peace do I give to you. Conclusion. Do not let your heart be troubled, nor let it be fearful. The promise of Jesus here is that the helper, the Holy Spirit, will be given to his people. We're beginning to see it right now in chapter 20. The Holy Spirit will teach the people of Jesus. The Holy Spirit will cause the people of Jesus to remember the words of Jesus for their tribulation, in their fears, in their anxiety. That's the process. When you are anxious... You recall the promises of God. John Piper says that it's the sword by which we cut off the root of fear, anxiety, grief, sorrow. We don't turn to other things. We turn to the promises of God, who helps us remember the promises in that moment. The Holy Spirit. And what is the result of the Holy Spirit's work in our lives? The promise is peace. Jesus contrasts his peace by his spirit and by his word and by his people, with the peace that the world gives. So here's a crisis of faith today. You have two pathways in this life for peace. And you are your own independent, autonomous human being that doesn't live accountable to me. The two choices are, the world offers a set of peace to you, and so does Jesus. And the question I pray you answer today is, which path are you going to take for peace? The pathway that the world tells you to, or the pathway that Jesus tells you to. But as you decide, you must remember, I don't know of a single person in this culture today that will do that for me. And I don't believe that I'm alone in this. I don't believe that culture at large, those people you follow on social media, will take upon that to do anything for you. I don't think so. Only one, the Lord Jesus. Worldly peace is shallow. That's why Tolkien says, all that glitters is not gold. All right, It's shallow. It's temporary. The experience of Jesus' word and the experience of his spirit is the experience of real and lasting peace. That is how the people of Jesus then and now fight sorrow, fight anxiety, fight trouble, and fight fear about living for him in this culture. You are called today, right now, to trust in the resurrected Jesus because Jesus calls you to love him personally and then go out and live for him publicly. So here's a question that I want to ask of you today. Are you living publicly for Jesus? Because here's a crazy thing. One of the many functions of a local church is meant to be like step one for you. You are never going to live for him at the Monday morning water cooler. Or whatever's going on now, I work digitally in a classroom, so it's different for me. You're never going to live for him on Monday morning at work if you're not living for him amongst people that you're in good company with. You See what I'm saying? One reason of 10,000 for why a local church is vital. Because this is our practice. If you can't say, I love and live for Jesus here, you're never going to do it with your friends in the world. Jesus calls you to love him personally and then live for him publicly. So if you are not living for Jesus publicly, the question is, what does that say about your loving Jesus personally? And over the years, I've used this metaphor. What does my love for my wife say if you cannot tell publicly that I actually love her? What does that say about my personal love for her? Something's wrong. Something's off. If it is not blatantly clear of my affection for her, when I go out into public, was it safe for my love for her privately? Right. It's even more true with Jesus. Jesus promises to provide all you need to love and live for him. And Jesus backed up his promises by taking on flesh, experiencing humiliation, crucifixion, and resurrection. Jesus provides peace through his people, the body of Christ, the church, His Spirit, the Holy Spirit, His Word, the Scriptures. So you are called today to live for publicly publicly for Jesus in a way that proves that you love Him personally. The way that you live for Jesus publicly is a sign of the relationship that's really taking place in your heart. It's not the thing itself, because there are lots of televangelists out there that I think is empty and void. It's a sign, okay? It could point to what's really going on. You will be tempted to fear and anxiety, just like these disciples were. Therefore, the promise is still the same today. Jesus is present in your fears, and Jesus speaks into your fears. Jesus gives you his spirit for your fears, and Jesus gives you his people, his body, the church, to be present in your fears. So today, the call for you is to live for Jesus in your marriage, in your family, in your friendships, in your relationships, at work and by large in culture. And pray that God has put you in a different position today to see and feel and hear a little different about Jesus. And pray that God puts you in a position to personally experience Jesus as your ultimate affection and authority.